Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Now, this is our very first episode, and you might have noticed that it's actually posted in three parts. The first two parts are watch-alongs, or audio reaction tracks, one for each movie, with our commentary over the films. If you haven't seen those movies before, or feel like re-watching them with us, you can go play those tracks and we'll keep you company. The third monthly upload is our discussion, where we really get into the meat of things. That's our spoiler-filled thoughts and conversation about the movies, as well as horror news, games, and more. You can listen without having heard the watch-alongs, but these episodes will make more sense if you've seen the movies. For instance, it's January 2020, and tonight we're watching Life Force from 1985 and Death Proof from 2007. A moment after the tone, Axis and I will come back and we'll talk about the movies we watched with spoilers. So, we were talking about Life Force um, from 1985, and my feelings on Life Force were um, that it reminded me a bit of Austin Powers' Gold Member, where Austin's trying not to say the word mole. And uh, <laughs> for the record, everyone, this is the uh, first film that we did, the first recording, uh, my first time watching the film with a friend, a female friend, <laughs> and um, I don't think I've ever made a bigger blunder when picking things out. Um... No, it yeah. really it made me kind of flash back to, you know, that, that scene, uh, you know, that, what's the song? Uh, getting to know you, getting to know all about. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's really diving headlong into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With it. And in my case, it was like trying to dive headlong into concrete. So the, the awkwardness <laughs> I felt reminded me of a time my father took me to see species in theaters. Um Rewatching this film, I want everyone to know I did my very breast to be professional, but I know I stuttered, stammered, and slipped up throughout the entire recording. Um, I didn't see Life Force until 2015, and even then, I'd only noticed it because my friend Dave Alexander, uh, the former editor of Rumorg, uh, had recommended it to me, and because Scream Factory had done an updated version with cover art by Justin Osborne. And thank God for Dave, because I probably wouldn't have watched the film otherwise, and I would have missed out on watching Jean-Luc Picard being sexually assaulted. <laughs> yeah, I will I will point out that was, uh, I think, an act of good grace on your part to allow me to, to see early Patrick Stewart, because, my God, it delights me to no end to think that this was pre-Star Trek in his career, meaning that whoever was looking at his audition tapes for Star Trek probably looked at footage from this movie and went, mm, yeah. That could be Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Right. <laughs> Patrick, when, when, when the Borg are taking you, I want you to channel that moment that, that the guy's almost going to kiss you. Channel, <laughs> channel that, channel that, Patrick. Just the intense twitching, please. The intense twitching. The screaming, the arms. Like, I want you to do, like, flailing T-Rex having a seizure kind of moment. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That said, I think film is a lot like wine, and Life Force is a terrific example of it. Time doesn't make wine taste better. It does, however, change, increase, or decrease certain aspects of the flavor. When it debuted, Life Force was labeled a sci-fi horror, but progressive social norms combined with the fact that this is also a film that recovered less than half of its budget, uh, which our other movie choice did as well, enables it to pair wonderfully with almost any retro or retro-themed exploitation film. What, what did you think? How did, how did you feel about it uh, as like as a film? As a whole, you know, it's 
It was interesting. I mean, it felt like a real kind of 80s flashback. Um, that's one of the things I, I, I thought was funniest was in the the many layers of what made sense in this movie and what didn't, I couldn't stop focusing on, um, you know, the whole kind of thing for Space Girl is her mysterious vampiric powers of seduction. But I'd been watching a, mu- a bunch of uh, Magnum P.I. right around when we started recording this. And uh, the combination of, you know, of that kind of felt like a, a real normalization of men being extremely lecherous in the 1980s, because I get that she's, yeah. you know, vampire seductress with magical space powers. But Every single goddamn man in this movie just walked in with, you know, like cartoon Looney Tunes eyes wide open, like, oh, okay, a naked woman walking down a stairwell, no problem. Do you want a sandwich, sweetie, before we like get it on? <laughs> the expectations were um something else. But I a bit you know, insulting. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. But I I enjoyed myself. It's uh a journey into the absurd, I think. <laughs> so this was your first horror movie in a while, or how often do you watch horror movies? Oh yeah, for sure. I not often ever. Like the last, the last one that I technically remember is a an official horror movie. I'll say it was probably uh, watching Pet Cemetery back at a seventh grade sleepover. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's been a minute, but mm. I I enjoyed myself. I've I, I did the uh, the loving horror literature review, which meant that Dracula was really fresh in my mind mm-hmm. when we got to watching this, mm-hmm. which meant that it was so easy to see what an exact mirror the plot is of the original Dracula. Like, the pacing is incredible, because if you look at it, both of them start with ostensibly the most of the action, put you right in the den of the beast, before it pulls back to, in, you know, in Life Force, Earth, or London, in the case of Dracula, for the big slow chunk in the middle where so little happens. I mean, still the 1980s version demanded a lot more action than the 1800s, but when you compare it to the beginning, it's a little different. Then, of course, the ghost ship arrives. Mm. They have to go to the asylum to take care of everything. And then it's the grand finale is the race to catch the vampire before they can retreat to their lair. And it's like just scene for scene, you can break it down. And then you get into the whole character discussion where... I pretty much everybody is a, a character mirror of one of the Dracula characters. So Falada is obviously Van Helsing. Mm-hmm. He's the the biochemist, but his passion is the, you know the nature of life and what happens after death, which mirrors Van Helsing being a man of science obsessed with the paranormal. He carries out the hypnosis on Carlson, which allows them to find the vampire, ultimately. You know, same thing with what happened to Mina. And most importantly, he has a giant sword. He pulls a giant sword out of nowhere. Where does this come from in 1980s London? Who could say? Yeah! (laughs) It's the old ritualistic used exclusively for vampire murder. And he is the only one who knows the secrets of how to truly murder the vampire. So, again, he's the mystic expert. But then the funniest part of the whole equation for me is that if Falada is Van Helsing, that means that Carlson has to be Mina. He's the one who gets uh, gets hypnotized. It's his trials and subsequent mysterious dream bond with a vampire that saves them, even though he brings them right to the brink of destruction. And man, 
I love reframing this movie by just thinking about uh, Carlson as the poor, sweet damsel in distress, just at the at the side of all of the strong men trying to handle <laughs> the plot of everything. Well, he's like, oh, I just wish I could help, but alas, I am poor and fragile. It's a, a little different, but I, I think I would enjoy it more that way. <laughs> I think that that's actually a very fair take on it. The only... and. As far as being a metaphorical movie, I think that it's all over the place. I think it's so, so sexual that everything gets convoluted. Um, and I just, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I I can't really take it too seriously because... Of, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's so over the top. It's, it's almost opera. It doesn't really feel like... <laughs> it really doesn't. It doesn't feel like anything where it has any semblance of reality. You know, maybe that's why I like it. Enough time in theater makes you suspend your disbelief. And especially, especially Falarda's tie, right? Yes! Helsing's tie is just <laughs> out of this world. And it's just like, I can't, I can't look at that movie and think like, oh, this could really happen, you know? <laughs> Another thing I never understand about this particular film and the book it's based on um, is that it's declared to be a part of the Lovecraftian canon. Um, and yet there's no space vampire. Actually, they're called Orans. Um, there's no space vampire expansion for any of the Lovecraftian-themed board games out there. It's a weird observation, I'll give you that, but it's definitely the thing that comes to my mind most whenever I, you know, look over at Life Force or rewatch Life Force. Um, yeah, I, I do not understand how like a company like chaosium or fantasy flight games has not picked up this nugget of gold and transformed it into some sort of board game expansion because people are throwing money these days at 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 everything lovecraftian themed for board games but and here is like something where it's a completely different take i mean we technically have frankenstein with um reanimator and we, we don't even really see that in the board game. But I'm just kind of shocked that as popular as the Lovecraftian canon is, and as popular as board games with Lovecraftian themes are, I'm kind of stumped as to why we haven't seen a Space Vampires or Orin expansion yet. I mean, it's just a weird thing. It's a weird observation. But, uh, you know, if I don't say yeah. it, I, I don't know who else will. No, I mean, I think it's fair. I'm a sucker for space horror. You put any trope in space and I automatically like it more. So (laughs) it seems like a natural evolution. I think so, too. And there hasn't really been one yet. And with how closely it mirrors the the classics, like, you would think it would have gotten stuck in there more firmly. So if you liked Life Force, I believe there's a lot of retro and new wave retro films that complement this film. Um, For those looking for more sexual elements uh, to balance out Life Force, um, Father's Day from 2011, or The Entity from 1982, if you want a more serious feel, definitely feel like the right fit for it. Yeah, briefly touching on the sexualization that you talked about before, I just want to harp on one thing that tortures me in filmmaking, and I'm sure I will have plenty more times to complain about over the course of this, but... The fact that we spent almost the entire movie getting full frontal nudity of Space Girl. I mean, she looks great. No no harm to her. She's doing a great job. The two male space vampires, you get to see nothing. Right. Why is film so afraid of showing male nudity? I'm I'm constantly mad about the double standard, and uh, it bugs the hell out of me. 
And one last note on this movie, because it delights me. I just, uh, while I was going through the IMDb pages, discovered that the guy who plays the minister in this movie, um, he -hmm. also played Dracula in, quote, a kung fu terror movie entitled The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which just sounds terrible, and now we have to watch it. We will. But I love that he made it into another Dracula incarnation. So Death Proof debuted in a double feature showcase in 2007 called Grindhouse, which I love, (laughs) which I'm addicted to, and probably nobody else in the horror world is addicted to, but (laughs) I I love it very much. Yeah, when you proposed this movie, you were gleeful. (laughs) I was gleeful. Yeah, I I tried to capture your interests and my interests in one sitting, and I I thought that that Death Proof was, uh, was fun, was a fun idea. And it was just, it was another movie where it made less than half of, of what it cost. Um, yeah, I know, right? Which is like the kiss <laughs> of death for any movie. It's like, by the way, yeah. you won't be getting a sequel. And especially with Tarantino's name on it, that's... Uh... That's saying something, yeah. It's very rare that a Tarantino film does not do well. Mm-hmm. I thought they they were really well done. I, I enjoyed Grand House from start to finish, and I don't think I was alone on that because two other films uh, emerged from that. One was the uh, Machete franchise starring Danny Trejo. Which most importantly integrated into the Spy Kids franchise, which is the real legacy. I think we can all agree. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Without question. <laughs> and the other film was Hobo with a Shotgun, which starred Rutger Hauer of Blade Runner fame, who uh, did an amazing job as well in that film. Uh, and also probably elevated the band Power Glove to new heights of fame with their song Hunters because, uh, yeah, it was an, an amazing scene. Uh, if you get a chance to catch that, it's the plague scene from Hobo with a Shotgun. That song just is pure adrenaline. <laughs> well, I will be looking that up. So the first thing I really loved about the film was the same thing that got Kurt Russell to sign, which was the juxtaposition of stuntman Mike from Stalker Killer to basically becoming the cowardly line from The Wizard of Oz. Yes. No offense to the cowardly line from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, dark spin for that poor lion. <laughs> I mean, wasn't that kind of like a selling point for you, though, where at first oh, it's just... absolutely. I mean, if it had not been for that turn, th- that is what made the movie. I mean, the beginning, fine, whatever. The, the end is clearly the the peak where you know mm. people all of the women kick his ass but it would not have been nearly as an enjoyable movie if i did not get to watch him writhe and suffer as he did that mm. that makes this movie it is perfect because of that i think so too i really felt that the the whole dynamic of the film was that it took you know the typical 80s slasher stalker where it was just you know, making women out to be scream queens. And that was something that was already being addressed at the time back in 2007. And then taking that negative stereotype and, you know, that's Tarantino's genius, just turning it right around onto its head where, okay, and now the girls are going to kill him. (laughs) Which is just awesome. Hell yeah. yeah. Oh my God. It's the last 20 minutes of this movie are just such a masterpiece. So enjoyable to watch, especially like... 
I can see why people can say that the beginning can drag. I understand. Mm. But like that last 20 minutes makes it all worth it. And I think you need the beginning to make that last 20 minutes as enjoyable as it is. Like it feels like such a catharsis after watching Kurt Russell be such a piece of shit <laughs> for the entire movie. <laughs> I really love how they just like kind of tossed him around by bitch slapping him and, and just punching him into yes! a circle. It actually felt like that little triangle like, it reminded oh. me so much of when they were slapping around Beatrix in Kill Bill. It makes me wonder if that if that's in other <laughs> Tarantino films, whether it's kinda like pass the victim around by swatting them. Um yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if that's the recurring theme. It's it is funny how immediately the foot fetish theme came up though. I I love that yeah. you had not considered yeah. that. And I mean to be fair, I hadn't because I'm not, you know, a Tarantino buff. I've watched pulp fiction, but that's about it and I don't remember anything in there. But this is like the most explicitly foot fetishy movie I have ever seen. There, the movie opens on a foot close up. There are walking foot shots. There are still foot shots. Stuntman Mike gets off on basically giving Abernathy a non-consensual like foot wet <laughs> willy. And they literally hired a foot double for Butterfly, which means that either A, somebody, read Quentin Tarantino, decided Vanessa Ferlito's feet weren't hot enough to merit the foot close-up, or B, Vanessa Ferlito was like, no thanks, I don't want a close-up of my feet in this movie. And Quentin Tarantino was so determined to have those feet in his movie that he hired somebody else because God damn it, he was going to get his sexy feet. Oh my and, God. <laughs> yeah, no. But after I had this whole like internal rant, over the past couple of weeks, I have seen now I think at least five different references in other places to Quentin t Quentin's uh, you know general foot fetish trajectory that have popped up in various other media I've been consuming. So I mean clearly it's not just us noticing, but this is a a horrifying new world for me to find out about. <laughs> yeah, me too. I have to admit, once you brought that up, and I had I've been watching this since two thousand seven, so I've watched this film, I've watched Grindhouse at least at least once every couple of months since 2007. So probably like 30 times in the last 10 years or so. And um, I never noticed it until you pointed it out to me. Like immediately, it's like, oh, it's about feet. And I'm like, oh my God, how did I miss that? <laughs> Which is weird. I had something similar with a friend where we were watching The Hateful Eight. Mm -hmm. And she comes out and I was like, wow, Quentin Tarantino just wrote like a love letter to John Carpenter's The Thing. And she's like, what? And I was like, you didn't see that? I was like, you know, the whole, the driver looks like McCready. And it's basically all guys and one girl, just like how John Carpenter's The Thing was supposed to be like a female presence amongst a bunch of men who were in isolation. So it's also like, I definitely appreciate that there was another um, layer mm -hmm. added for me. But at this point, the foot lens is so unbelievably creepy. It just, I can't watch it anymore without noticing You're going to have that. to live with that every single time you rewatch this time. movie from now every on. Every time. Oh. Every single time. Without question. Mm -hmm. it's, it's. I mean, horrible. at least at least this movie, I'm sure, gave all of the actresses involved notable wiki feed entries because they gave just a wealth of foot shots to go in on. That's true. <laughs> Oh, there's something to look forward to if you get cast in a Tarantino film, huh? <laughs> yeah. Finally, the world shall see my feet. Exactly. You get that casting call and you're like, God damn, this is my big break. I'm going to be in a Tarantino movie. But am I ready for the foot fetish coverage? <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the music? 
Oh, the music was fantastic. I mean, I feel like it played into the whole kind of a time flashback, the way it was such a time capsule movie, despite being set in the present, Mm. and the music kind of framed that so well. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I liked that a lot. Um, It kind of creates itself as a cult film with how all the film edits and how it flashes in and out of black and white and puts in the film grain. It's a a little funny, but I enjoyed that. I thought that was... That was fun. Which is pure Tarantino. Yes. That is Tarantino at the end of the day, right? Yeah. That's that's mostly his style. It's it's always going back between those those different camera formats and then I don't know how he picks his music. That's one thing I've never really sat down and looked into because every time he picks his music, it's just it's always some amazing soundtrack and I always end up it's just like Every time I go into a Tarantino film, I always know that I'm going to end up walking out with at least two CDs <laughs> worth of music that are going to be in my car for like the next six months. That's that's actually exactly how it goes. So I do believe that. I am biased, though, because unfortunately, like the strongest musical memory in in the movie is, of course, when Butterfly is like, time for a lap dance. And she does the whole bizarre <laughs> lap dance routine while she's wearing flip flops to... <laughs> On Kurt Russell's lap, which is just such a surreal kind of moment in this movie. I don't think I've ever seen anybody be so explicitly sexual while wearing flip-flops. Like, I think flip-flops are the least sexy shoe in the world in my mind. But, of course, again, if you're in, if you're Quentin Tarantino, I'm sure it has a, a different appeal. Yeah, for me, it's something totally different there. Whenever I think of this film... I always think of Dave D. Dozy, Beaky Mitch, and Titches <laughs> Hold Tight. That's always going to be oh, yes. forever. I didn't even know that song. I was never really, I was never a fan of The Who. It was really before my time. Um, but the f- song was so good. And the moment itself was so traumatic mm-hmm. that, yeah. I, I remember watching it the first time thinking, what's he doing? Because I'd never seen anything like that done before. I really enjoy automotive horror. I like things like Christine and I grew up with a whole bunch of Ghost Rider comics from the 1970s. But that one moment where he zooms by them in the dark, turns his car around, turns his lights off and starts revving his engine. It didn't dawn on me until maybe five seconds before the, before the actual hit comes that, that Stuntman Mike was going to do what he did. And that I really loved about the film um, was that there were all these little unexpected twists and turns. And I was really kind of sad that there wasn't more music with Zoe kicking Stuntman Mike's ass. I really would have liked like some sort of James Brown, you know, I'm coming, baby, something like that. Just some some sort of moment where, you know, Zoe's just kicking his ass. Yeah, the sounds of the slaps and the punches and silence was pretty profound. But I do want I do want something because. God, I could watch Zoe Bell just kick people's asses for the rest of my life and be fine. I cannot believe that people can be critical of her. Like, I finished this movie and I'm like, God damn, I think I'm in love with Zoe Bell. Like, look at her. She is a powerhouse throughout this entire thing. I think we all were. Yeah. I think we all were after that moment, especially that moment where she's hitting him with a pipe and he manages to speed off and she, like, runs right back toward the car (laughs) hops in throws the pipe in and they speed she's like go 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 it's just like there's just this she's about to start fucking car jousting and she looks so powerful it's incredible yeah yeah i really loved it oh well if you enjoyed death proof uh great news there's a lot more um you can check out its sister film planet terror 2007 
Um, also, like I mentioned earlier, two of the film's fake trailers became full-length features, Hobo with a Shotgun and Machete. Um, Eli Roth, if you're listening, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to write and direct Thanksgiving, because uh, that is something that uh, really just needs to be made. <laughs> I have no idea what's been delaying you all these years, uh, but there's definitely enough fan demand out there. Fly back to Prague and make this thing. <laughs> Well, we hope you've enjoyed everything so far. Here at The Late Night, we also believe in raising awareness for worthy causes, and sometimes we'll skew toward a cause associated with the month we're broadcasting in. But that probably won't always be the case. Of course, we keep in mind that not everyone has disposable income, so whenever possible, we try to advocate for causes that don't require spending money. According to the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey by the CDC in 2010, an estimated 25 million people have been stalked in the United States over the course of their lifetime, and an average 7.5 million are stalked in one year. It's worth noting that 76% of femicide victims were murdered by intimate partners and were stalked prior to being killed. Unfortunately, very few stalkers are arrested, prosecuted, or even charged. To learn more about how you can help, visit stalkerawareness.org. You guys ever hear the saying, the blood is the life? Well, January is also Blood Donor Awareness Month. Do you know how many people will die without a blood transfusion in the U.S. alone? According to the World Health Organization, about 4.5 million. Did you know that every three seconds someone needs blood? Yet only 10% of people who can donate blood actually do it? Just one pint of your blood can help save up to three people. If you live in America... You can visit redcrossblood.org or americasblood.org. If you live in Canada, you can go to blood.ca. In Ireland, there's giveblood.ie. In the UK, it's blood.co.uk. And in Australia, it's donateblood.com.au. Stay tuned for the horror news. Here on The Late Night, we also want to help aspiring horror authors find homes for their spooky stories. January is normally a slow month, but there are a couple venues worth mentioning. Although Tales to Terrify is currently closed for paid submissions, they are open to flash fiction pieces up to 2,500 words. You can learn more at talestoterrify.com forward slash submissions. Also, The Dark is an online magazine that's looking for fiction pieces from 2,000 to 6,000 words. Be sure to visit them at thedarkmagazine.com forward slash submission dash guidelines forward slash for more details and finally there's black static black static is always open to submissions of news stories up to a maximum of 10,000 words ttapress.com forward slash black static forward slash if you're a magazine or press that's interested in having your submissions advertised on the late night you can write to monorlawrence at hotmail.com As for the rest of you, keep writing and keep warm. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Twitter.